Ain't surprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days Just representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives And I am so excited to finally formally announce The Rambling Runner Virtual Summit 2021, January 15th through the 17th. You can go to theramblingrunner.com forward slash summit, and it's all right there. I am just so excited to bring this to you. The speakers that we have for this summit, they're the best of the best in the running community, and they're going to be talking about very specific topics for dedicated amateur runners to reach their highest level possible in 2021. If you register for this event, you'll have lifetime access to the videos. I'm going to be turning them all into podcasts as well. I'm going to be doing live post-game show each night with Carolyn Sue from Diverse We Run to talk about the topics and have some interaction with the attendees. This is going to be absolutely phenomenal, and I can't wait. You might be thinking, well, Matt, he said there's going to be some great guests, some great speakers. Who are they? Well, let me tell you, it's got we got David Roche, Jason Fitzgerald, Dr. Megan Roche, Tina Muir, Carrie Tollefson, Sarah Bishop, Jordan Marie Daniel, James McCurdy, Corey Waltering, Matt Fitzgerald, Ro McGettigan, Mark Betterhorn, Mary Johnson, Mike Kafuzi Co., Jared Ward, Christy Ashwanden, Amanda Asaro, Lance Woods and Joe Robinson, Heather Peck, Nell Rojas, Mario Mendoza, Claire Green, and Mario Fraioli. It's a who's who of the running community, and I cannot wait to bring you along. So we got early bird registration from today, November 23rd, until November 31st. It's $125 to register. Basically, the price of one month of one-on-one coaching you get to hear from 23 people and have lifetime access to all the information that they can provide to you. So go over there today and check it out, theramblingrunner.com forward slash summit. There's also a link in the show notes. Today's episode is with my man, Jay Hewitt. Jay, my goodness, what an unbelievable figure. This guy is truly amazing. He was on the show uh, earlier in the summer, and it was one of our most popular episodes ever. This man has overcome so much in his life, and it is truly remarkable. I really, really recommend that you go back and listen to that episode. I've had so many people tell me that they have listened and re-listened to that episode just because of how amazing Jay is. And today, he is no different. So he who's on the quest to compete in Ironman triathlon despite having brain cancer, excuse me, and he was able to do it. That's right. He was able to do it. And... This is basically the post-Ironman conversation that we promised you that we would have uh, earlier on in the summer. So without further ado, let's get into it with Jay Hewitt. Jay Hewitt is back. A lot of people were hoping this would happen. Jay, thanks for reaching out and making sure that we do it. I'm so excited to get you back on the show. Uh, thanks so much, Matt. It's great to be back. Uh, after being on your show the first time, your community was incredible to me. I got so many new follows on Instagram and the encouragement that came my way was just unreal. So it's be, it's great to be back with you. I'm a big fan of you, but I'm also a big fan of the whole community that you've created here. Well, it's it's not a huge surprise to me considering what you're up to. I mean, so many people can relate 
to not not your story, you know, specifically. And if people want to dive back in, go back to episode 252, which was in July. Uh, it was an all-timer here on the Rambling Runner podcast. But I think what people could relate to was just this sense of determination as well as um, just this sense of grace and, you know, and spirituality that you brought to the episode too. Because for so many people, and this is a topic that doesn't get addressed a whole lot on running podcasts, even my own, was this intersection of athletics and spirituality and religion for some people that can be so powerful and moving to say nothing of just of your, you know, of working through cancer and, and all of that. So it was uh, an episode unlike uh, any other I've, I've put together. But with that being said, Hey man, all the credit goes to you because it wasn't the host that, that that got people to follow you. It was you and uh, and everything that you're doing. Oh, thanks so much, man. This has been a lot of fun, and, and I'm really glad to to continue the conversation. Yeah. So where we left off is in that conversation was we talked so much about what had happened up to July. Um, you know, in terms of your health, you know, the ups and downs had come with that, um, your athletic background, as well as your uh, religious and spiritual background as well. And, and we kind of ended the show basically saying like, all right, <laughs> we, we can go another hour here talking about your training and, and your desire to achieve this lifetime goal of doing a full Ironman triathlon. Uh, but at that point, I think we'd already gone like 75 minutes. So we're like, all right, we have to call it here and we'll hopefully pick it up again later. So let's do just that. So take us back to uh, the beginning of the summer and where you were from a fitness perspective in terms of getting down the path to the ultimate goal of, of doing the Ironman triathlon? Yeah. So I was uh, both right on track and really struggling uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one, because of the pandemic, all of uh, the races that I, I was registered for, they just kept getting canceled. Um, and so I was planning at first to do Ironman Australia in um, May, that got canceled. Then I switched my registration over to Ironman uh, Santa Rosa. And when we talked, I was planning on doing that at the end of July. That got canceled. And uh, so I had to figure out how long can I keep putting this off and deferring this? Uh, so I had some decisions to make that way. And then also, as I was uh, going through my cancer treatment, uh, I suffered a low back strain coming off of a uh, uh, 100-mile bike ride. I was swinging my foot over the seat post and everything just tightened up. And as a result of the chemotherapy, I didn't heal as quickly as I normally would. So I really had to work hard to rehab that injury to get back on track. Um, so coming, coming out of summer, I was wondering, am I going to be able to pull this thing off? All right, so let's talk about what your doctors and oncologists were saying as you continued to ramp up the training in conjunction with your cancer treatments. What, what kind of advice or warnings or support were they giving you? Well, uh, it was across the board, every doctor that I was dealing with was so excited that I was doing this. And they felt like exercise is the best, uh, the best medicine and would really help my body to take on uh, all of the chemicals that were being pumped into me. I'd be able to receive that the best uh, based on what type of shape I was in. And so they were uh, very encouraging of my training, but they also tempered it with, um, you know, 
just really listening to my body. And if, uh, if I felt like it was too much back off. And so I had a pretty clear indicator. If, if I pushed my training too hard, I would have a seizure and that would tell me that's too much. And I'd have to back off on the intensity and and pacing and, and things like that. And, uh, take another, another run at it. So, um, yeah, I had to find that balance of knowing that my doctors were behind me, but also not pushing it so much that I had that, uh, seizure triggered, but still pushing it hard enough that I'd be able to train my body to go 140.6 miles in under 17 hours. Right. I mean, that, and that's the kind of training where for most people, like training for that would automatically cause them to like overdo it <laughs> by definition of the race itself, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, it, it's a, one heck of an effort. So when we talked last time, and this is something that um, I held close to the vest uh, just because of, you know, family, you know, secrecy, yes, secrecy, but, you know, just, you know, confidentiality and, and how people wanted to address their own things was that my mother-in-law at the exact same time as we talked was going through chemotherapy therapy um, for breast cancer. And she lives directly across the street from us. And so I was able to see firsthand what its effect on her was right in real time. Cause we got, this was also during uh, a time where we were sequestered. So um, basically our little bubble of people were, you know, our four family members, my wife and my two kids, and then her and her husband. So my, my mother and father-in-law it was basically a six person bubble that we stayed in, not only from a COVID standpoint, but just because of her, um, her treatment, like that was going to be the way it was anyway, right? Even if there was no COVID, she would have to keep a pretty tight leash on who was around her because she basically had no immune system. So I was able to see firsthand what she was going through. And, you know, she's one of those people but not unlike yourself, who is completely full of energy. You know, you, you know, they have the, those sleep studies where they say like 95% of people need seven to eight hours of sleep and like 5% can get away with five hours yeah. of sleep. And like everyone's <laughs> like, yeah, I'm in that 5%. It's like, no, no, yeah. you're not. You're not in that 5%. <laughs> <laughs> you're not in there. Um, she's, she's the one that's in there. Like uh-huh. her and her family, like that's just how they are. Like I'll, I'll go for an early morning run, her lights on, I'll stay up way too late, take out the dog, her lights on. Right. So <laughs> this is how she is. Um, and I was able to see someone who's unbelievably high energy and just see the, the toll it took on her, which was um, demonstrable. So with that said, let's talk about exactly what that kind of uh, chemotherapy, the kind of chemotherapy you had, I mean, you don't have to say the exact name of it, but like how it relates to the severity of other remedies and other chemotherapies, because there are there is a quite a wide range. And that's one thing that I learned through this um, and how exactly it took its toll on you, uh, I guess, in terms of like, say, examples, like what you would be able to do before and how you had to alter it because of it. Yeah, yeah. So the chemotherapy that I was on is uh, considered to be somewhat mild. Uh, however, as the doctors emphasized over and over, everybody's body reacts differently to it. And so although compared to other chemotherapies, my regimen was mild, my body did not respond to it well. So it was severe for me. Uh, So, you know, I'd be meeting with my doctors and, and telling them about the nausea that I was feeling, the intense headaches and the intense fatigue. And, you know, they would just kind of scratch their head and say, hey, you're one of those 5% 5% that, that this uh, really uh, takes its toll on. And so we're just going to have to watch that. So uh, my white blood cell count was really low. Uh, so my immune system was down, 
But the other thing that it, it really impacted was I wasn't getting as much oxygen to my muscles, which, as you know, any endurance athlete needs oxygen flowing to their, mus- their muscles. Um, and so uh, when I was training, I would, I'd get fatigued more. My afternoons were absolutely shot. And uh, I would, like a toddler, I would have to take a, a nap every afternoon. <laughs> my, my family would we'd schedule our day around my afternoon nap. And it's still that way. Um, and then I was experiencing severe headaches and nausea as well. But what I found is because I wasn't able to sleep well during that time, uh, I would wake up early and I would have the most energy at the beginning of the day. And so that's when I would go train. And so I'd be able to get out for two to seven hours in the morning and have relatively good energy. Uh, probably not as much as if I had no treatment, but I was, I was able to find that sweet spot and that's where I fit my training in. All right. I want to ask a question here and if it's too personal, you can feel free to, to pass and we can move on. Um, but in the midst of all of this, you're taking on a lot. You're again, your, your energy levels are going to be depressed because of the therapy. And then it's going to be even more depressed because of the, because you're training for an Ironman and you're going to be tired even in the best of circumstances. So what was that like for you in terms of um, your coordination from a family perspective with your wife in terms of like coordinating what you were doing with your family and your kids and the potential, you know, trade-off of an, an endeavor like this, which can be all consuming in some ways coupled with the cancer and then, you know, your work, um, you know, as a pastor, how are you able to, to, to make sure that all of the areas of your life were attended to in a way that did everything justice? Yeah. In the beginning, it was a dream and then it turned into a nightmare. So back in my twenties, I did an Olympic distance triathlon. And after doing that, I thought, yeah, that's probably the longest distance I'm going to be able to do because of the training that it took even for that Olympic distance. And I thought, there's just no way I'm ever going to have the time in my life to dedicate to train for, for a full distance Ironman. Uh, but when I got my diagnosis, I was also put on medical leave. And so that allowed me to take my daughter to school. My wife would go to work and then I would train. And then I would pick my daughter up and my wife would come home and it was like I wasn't even gone. Uh, however, uh, COVID-19 comes on the scene and now my wife is working at home and my daughter is at home as well, uh, not in school. And my wife and daughter get up and I'm already gone. And it's just kind of like, peace out, I'll be back in five hours. And that was really difficult on, uh, on my family. And it really uh, tore me up because the whole reason I was doing this Ironman is for my daughter. I wanted to teach my daughter resiliency and I wanted to forge a deep connection with her and make her feel really loved and really special that I dedicated this race to her. But now all of a sudden, I'm I feel vacant from her life. And that's why when the races started getting postponed, I was like, I can't keep deferring this and taking time away from my family. I, I need to get this done. And so that's when we just finally decided in October to uh, go through it with it on our own and plan our own iron distance race. Uh, and just, you know, it's not about the medal. It's not about the title. It doesn't have to be an official Ironman, but I'm going to go the distance. 
Uh, and then in doing so, Iron Man heard about it and they said, hey, this is going to be uh, our first ever VR full distance race in October. You want to be a part of that and we'll sanction your race. And they jumped on board. I jumped on board with them. We ended up being able to help each other out quite a bit. And it turned out to be a dream. It was really cool. But the training towards the end was really hard on my family. And I needed to, I needed to complete this thing. And what were you able to do mentally and emotionally to put yourself in a good headspace for everyone in your life, right? So you're, you're, you're in the situation now where all of a sudden what you thought would be this unifying thing is now being not, maybe not overly divisive, but there's a divisive element within it. So, you know, but you still have to follow through with it. So you're kind of, you're in this odd space. So what did you have to do at that point, I guess, mentally and emotionally to set yourself right, given the circumstances, knowing that, you know, once this is all completed, I'm assuming like, it's like, okay, we're going to get back to normal here and, and things, then this too shall pass type feeling to it. But obviously you maybe weren't going to be able to go the distance, as you put it, with that kind of negativity hanging over your head, especially considering that you're just kind of a, a super positive guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that, in the time, once we uh, hit the, the pandemic uh, quarantine, uh, things got really difficult and there was a lot of self doubt. Is this what I'm really supposed to be doing with my time? Is this the best way for me to love my daughter? And uh, a lot of people thought I was crazy to start with, you know, who, who gets, who gets diagnosed with cancer and decides then to just heap suffering on suffering and do a, an Ironman, you know, that's nuts in and of itself. But now I was questioning myself, am I crazy? Um, but I just, I kept coming back to the purpose while I, why I was doing it. And I kept reminding myself that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I have the opportunity now to allow my daughter to see me knocked down by life, but still get up every day and go train and hold on to hope and keep pressing forward and, and to actualize this dream to press on to the finish line. And I knew that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so even though the struggle became more and more, I thought, if I can just stay the course and get through this, this time, and I put in, I had to put that end date on it because it was this mini moving finish line. And while the finish line was moving, it was just maddening. So once I decided I'm going to plan my own race, uh, then I was able to focus back in on this. This is just for a time. And after I'm done with this, I'll be able to pivot my attention to teaching my daughter resiliency through a different way. So with the race, I was allowing her to see me from a distance, set an example. But then after the race, I had plans to, to teach her shoulder by shoulder uh, as we worked together. And so since the race, at, at the finish line, I gave her a resiliency journal for kids. And it's really fun and really great for promoting a growth mindset. And so we sit down now daily, and it's part of her curriculum. Um, to, to learn resiliency and we do it together. And then we do these little challenges and I'm right by her side as she's jumping off of, you know, little waterfalls into pools and things that she was once scared to do. She's now facing those and I'm right there with her. So I just had to keep that vision in mind as I was trudging through and wondering, is this the right use of my time? 
And fortunately for me, it paid off and it was the right use for my time. And there's this awesome bond that I forged with my daughter and I've, I've seen her get the, get the message, message received. That resiliency journal is a great idea. Not only that, but that you're also kind of working alongside of her with it. Um, I feel parent shamed. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what am I doing with my daughter? Um, But no, that is a wonderful idea. And I would not be surprised if I end up stealing it. Um, Yeah, I'll make sure I'll give you credit. Yeah. Yeah, right. But that sounds wonderful. Uh, And kudos to you for, for making that happen. So let's dive into the training. Um, you know, we, we promised that we were going to get into that and I can't wait to do it. So let's, let's go back to maybe the spring, right? So let's kind of look at it like in a, a six month capsule, right? So we go back to say April or so, where were you in your training? Let's, I mean, we can, there's a lot of different ways we could s- summarize this. So I guess let's talk about like, what did your training look like by, you know, in terms of like weekly output, you know, swimming, running, biking, you know, either hours done or miles or however you want to quantify it. Yeah, you know, uh, because I wasn't uh, an endurance athlete to start with, I had to build a base of fitness. And so uh, I spent time first just running and, and making sure I could I could handle 20 miles. And then once I, I got up to a place where, yeah, I can do 20 miles at a time, then I shifted and I had to learn how to swim. I mean, of course, I could keep my head above water, but I didn't know how to swim competitively. And so I got a, a friend to coach me and... Um, I built up the ability to swim two miles uh, somewhat comfortably. And then from there, then I had to learn how to, how to cycle. And I thought that would be the easiest. I thought, yeah, I'll, you know, now that I can run 20 miles and I can swim two miles, uh, I should be able to translate into cycling and, and hit that hundred mile mark pretty easily. But what I found was, uh, my flexibility was way, way underdeveloped. And that really uh, wreaked havoc on me on the on the bike. And so I had to both uh, really dive into yoga and continue to cycle. And uh, so once I was able to do all three of those uh, disciplines individually, then I found myself a triathlon coach. And, uh, she is, she's competitive at the world, at the world championship level. Uh, she is a breast cancer survivor. She knows her stuff and she knows more importantly, how to, how to tweak the normal, uh, regimen to, uh, to deal with the, the treatment that I was facing. And so once I brought my coach on board, then we started doing, uh, brick workouts where I'm running and swimming or, biking and running. Um, and she really hammered it into my head that you, in triathlon, you can't look at each of the three disciplines as individual sports. You have to look at it as one sport of triathlon and get your body used to uh, uh, competing uh, with multiple disciplines. All right, let's give her a shout out. What's her name? Her name is Margaret Hepworth, and she coaches with Tri-City Cycles in Boise, Idaho. Gotcha. Okay. So I've heard so many people talk about triathlon, and one of the things that is fairly common, if not unanimous, is the idea of swim technique being this like silver bullet within triathlon world, is that if you have the proper swim technique, it can change so much um, as opposed to say like 
proper running technique or even like with the bike that, that from a technique perspective, it can be such a game altering move. If you can really dial that in, is that what you experienced? Oh, absolutely. And I was so fortunate to have a, a friend who was a swimmer in college who was willing to come to the pool uh, twice a week and just watch me and correct me at every turn. And when I started, uh, you, you know, I was aerobically in pretty good shape. Um, and I'd been, you know, been in the gym for a long time. So my, my muscles were strong, but I got in the water and, and I swam a hundred meters and thought, there's no way I can go further than this. <laughs> this is just crazy. And to think about, you know, going 4,000 meters, I'm like, there's no way I'll ever be able to get there. But, uh, my coach started really working on that. My swim coach really started working on that technique. And by the end, he was able to get me to a place where after 2.4 miles of swimming, I really felt like it was a good warm up. I felt like all of my all of my muscles were now warmed up, ready for the bike, ready for the run. And I was even able to get into a really meditative state during the swim. But if I didn't have that technique, if I wasn't able to get to a place where I felt like I was gliding, um, it would have just been a absolute struggle all the way through. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have made it without my coach teaching me. There's no way I would have been able to just muscle through it. So what are some of the, the, the tips, hints, coaching points that you received? And again, I understand that every single swimmer is different. And just because you receive these tips, other people might not benefit from this, but I'm just so curious because I've heard this so many times to the point, again, like it's basically unanimous, but I've never had a chance to drill down into exactly what sorts of changes or alterations need to be made for a common swimmer to really get that glide technique going. Yeah. The, the first thing that he corrected on me was my head placement. So I had to keep my head down. Uh, I want to lift my head up so I can see where I'm going. And, um, there's almost an eerie feeling when you're just staring straight down, whether you're swimming in a, in a Olympic pool or you're out in the ocean doing open water swimming to look straight down feels almost counterintuitive. You, you just naturally want to tilt your head up a little bit. And I remember one day he just said to me, Jay, if you don't figure out how to keep your head down, you're never going to make it. You're not going to make that distance. And that, that woke me up. And so I worked really hard on getting my head down. And what that does is that brings your hips up because what happens is when you bring your head up, your hips sink, and then you're just really dragging your whole lower body through the water and you're using your arms to do it. Uh, but once you get your head down, your hips come up and now you're, you're gliding more on that plane. So that was the biggest change that he made for me. And then of course he, he went through all the mechanics of your catch and the entry and exit of your arms and, uh, the angles that you use there to get the best leverage. Cause he was really working on me to, um, to swim more with my upper body than lower which wouldn't be advisable for you know a competitive swimmer but because I was going to be putting so much work on my legs for the rest of the triathlon he wanted to get me uh swimming a little more with my upper body than lower body so I was kicking of course but he really worked with that arm placement so I could get the most out of every pull now were you able to do any open water swimming um or were you basically focused in the pool most of the time yeah, I felt so fortunate to live in Southern California and be able to just 
drive down to the ocean and do open water swimming. And so I started with only the pool. And again, fortunate to have a great Olympic uh, size pool, outdoor, good weather, um, you know, 50 meter pool. So, you know, it wasn't just 25 meters where I was doing kick turns all the time, but I was able to, to get a good rhythm going in the pool. And that's where I got my technique really dialed in. And then once I had that down, then we moved to the open water um, where I could learn to deal with, uh, with some surf and some currents and, uh, things of that sort. Um, and then I was, I was local just to, I was fortunate to be local enough just to drive down to Newport beach and, uh, swim there. Yeah. That's always nice. And that's for sure. <laughs> so let's talk about <laughs> dealing with just a full day's worth of exercise, right? Cause you're talking about, like, you're not, you know, you're not going to come in at, like the nine, the nine hour mark. Right. This isn't as if like you're, you're a professional triathlete who's just going to kick butt. As you mentioned, like if you were hoping like I need to get under 17 hours, right? I need to get under 17 hours. So how does one prepare to do that amount of exercise in one day and also to prepare themselves to fuel appropriately to even, even if you had all of the, um, availability from a fitness perspective, cardio perspective, aerobic capacity and in your, you know, your, your muscles and ligaments and tendons are all ready for the effort uh, in terms of just being able to fuel yourself through, you know, an excruciating day from basically sunrise to sunset. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that, that was really tough to wrap my, my brain around. And if it weren't for my coach telling me I was on track, I would just never know because it's not like you go out and you do a couple 140 mile days to see how it feels, you know, that it puts too much strain on your body to do that. So you go into the race, never having done that, but instead, uh, you're training your body to do seven hours a day. So, you know, okay, I can, I can exercise for seven hours a day. Now you mentioned that Chicken nine speak for yourself. Seven hours. <laughs> I, just, I just ran for an hour and I'm good. I'm good, man. <laughs> So, so, you know, I'm trying to finish this thing in 17 hours. And so when I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, so I've, I've worked up to I can do a seven hour day for my long brick workout, but that's not 17. Will I be able to do that? But then my coach is telling me, yeah, but you're getting 20 hours worth of work in a week. And the time that you have to recover is relatively short from one day to the next. And so your body is learning to put this together. And she said, you know, you're, you're completely on track with where you're at. And I just had to, to trust her on that. And so, you know, as I was training, the first is I want to, I want to just get in under 17 hours, um, to earn the right to be called Ironman. Uh, but then my pacing looked like, oh, okay, I think I could probably do this in 15 hours. And so that was the goal. And then the day of, uh, just had good conditions and a good day. And I came in under 14 hours. Um, and it turned out that the training that my coach had put me through my body, my body was ready for it. My stomach wasn't. Um, and I had, uh, because the chemotherapy had wreaked havoc on my digestive system, uh, at about mile 120, six miles into the marathon, my stomach turned on me and all the nutrition that I had been putting into my body to sustain uh, the energy that I needed and to, to stop the cramping that so easily, uh, 
comes up later in the race, my gut wasn't able to absorb that nutrition. So, it was just sitting in my stomach. And so, I felt like about the last 20 miles of the marathon, I felt like I was running with the stomach flu. Um, and it was just, it was miserable. But at the same time, my body was able to do it. So, it became more of a mental state of oh gosh, <laughs> I feel like I have the flu and I should be in bed. But no, I can I can keep going. Just keep pressing on. Keep going. Your daughter's waiting for you at the finish line. So you got to make it there. Oh, for sure. And I'm hey, thankfully it stayed in your stomach, right? I mean, or, or came out or came out like, you know, through the mouth. I, you know, I think we've all been on runs where it's um, <laughs> given a new meaning to the word runs. Um, from a GI system perspective, and those can go terribly, um, especially in shoes, especially on race day. So thankfully, uh, it didn't get too bad for you out there. And when you're going through everything you're going through, you're really putting your body to the test in every possible way through this training, right? Uh, we've talked about all of the reasons why. Um, one of the things that we talked a lot about in our first our first conversation was the mental side and the the spiritual side and the emotional side. So, what was it like for you in those parts um, as you were putting your body to the test? Was there some sort of um, you know? I guess, I guess what was your relationship from a a mind body and spiritual to body perspective as you were really putting your body to the limit? Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting that as I was putting my body to the test, I was also putting my God to the test because there's a scripture that that tells us that when we're dealing especially with with health issues that uh, God's grace grace is sufficient and that his strength is perfected in our weakness. And so we can conclude then that when we are weak, we're actually strong. And so I was in a sense putting the scripture to the test and saying, all right, God, I, I'm at my weakest right now. And let's see what you mean by this. And how is it that your power is perfected in my weakness? And am I really strongest when I'm weakest? Can I really do something that even if I wasn't going through these health issues, I, I wouldn't be so sure that I'd be able to complete it. Um, but now that I'm at my weakness, now it seems even less likely. And so, I was, I was really I was putting my God to the test. And then right before my event, I came across a scripture that says, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And I thought, hmm, I want to apply that and see how that works. And I know from my time pastoring that the best way to access joy is through gratitude. And so, I decided uh, the night before my race to set my intention to be grateful every step of the way and to allow gratitude to fuel me and give me access to the joy, to the strength of the, lo the Lord through joy. And so when I came to the, the starting line, my thought was, you know, with the, with the high risk surgeries that I went through, there was a good chance that I was going to come out paralyzed, but I'm not paralyzed. And I'm so grateful that my body can move and I can swim and I can bike and I can run. And I'm going to allow my body to do what it was designed to do. I'm going to allow it to move. And I'm grateful to even be at the start line. Who cares what happens down the road? I'm grateful for this moment. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned with endurance sports is it's really about staying present and staying positive, um, not thinking too far down the road. 
but staying right in that moment and doing what you need to do to get through that moment and finding a way to stay positive. And practicing gratitude really gave that to me. So I jumped in the, you know, the the air horn went off. I go past the start line, jump in the water, and I start my swim. And uh, it just so happens that uh, about a mile into the swim, I swim by this footbridge and it's lined with family and friends, probably about a hundred people. And it's on the right side of me, which is my breathing side. And it was just perfectly, they were just at the right height above me, probably eight feet above the water, that every time I would come out of the water to take a breath, my eyes naturally went up to the footbridge and I could see every person's face and smile and I could read the signs that they were holding. And then I came across my wife and daughter halfway across that footbridge and I saw the smile on my daughter's face and my hand was out of the water halfway through the stroke and I was able to just wave to her. And it was amazing how much energy I received from seeing my daughter smile, seeing her jump up and down. It connected me back to the purpose of why I was doing everything. And I was just able to do that throughout the entire day, throughout my swim, my bike, and my run. So that by the time I got to the point in the run where things got difficult, I had so much positive energy carrying me through that I was even able to find things to be grateful for in the difficulties. Like, for instance, one of the things I was grateful for is that I had had the experience of training through the nausea that comes along with chemotherapy treatment. And I thought, well, if I was able to do it then, I can do it now. And I'm grateful that I've already done it. And this isn't my first time experiencing this. And I had the confidence to keep going. And then the last mile of the marathon, last mile of the whole race, 139 miles, I got one mile to go. And I felt the uh, positivity starting to wane. And I was just I was starting to get grumpy, almost like you get grumpy when you get hungry, I was getting hangry. And I, uh, and I wanted so badly to get back to that positive place, because I knew that at the finish line, all my friends and family, and most importantly, my daughter was going to be there. And I wanted to be able to take in that moment and really enjoy it as the culmination of, of all of this. And so a mile left, I just sent up a prayer and said, all right, Lord, you have given me strength all the way, but I need you to come through for me one more time in a kind of spectacular way. And I need it now. <laughs> and I just asked him, could you could you help me get back to the place I need to be to really enjoy this ending? And I came around the corner and it was the last aid station and somebody handed me a cup of water, a volunteer that's also a friend handed me a, a cup of water with ice in it. And by this time, it's nighttime. So I started in the dark, I raced all throughout the day and now night had fallen again. And I took that ice water and I just dumped it back uh, down the back of my neck and it woke me up and it perked me up and it snapped me out of that negative place that I slipped into. And I was able to then run that last mile with anticipation of the end. And when I came in and there were all these people waiting for me, cheering me on, and I saw my daughter at the finish line, it was just so incredible. And I was able to put my body to the test, but really I put my God to the test and 
both those things came through. My God came through. And because of that, my body came through. And it turned out to be a really spiritual experience for me. So let's talk about limitations. I think one of the key things that comes through in your story is this the idea of basically like no limits on what you were able to get through at various points in your life, both athletic and non-athletic uh, situations. So here you are again, going past so many barriers uh, again in your life. So talk to us a little bit about your understanding and relationship to limitation and ceilings and, and things like that um, in all areas of life. Again, this is you know physically, mentally, and emotionally. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned through this is that we can't be afraid to fail. And so often we, we take a look at our, our limits and we think, well, if that's my limit, then I'm never going to try and go past what I perceive my limit to be. Uh, but I went into this not knowing if I was going to make it. And it was uh, victory enough just to make it to the start line. I had no idea if my limitations were going to stop me from getting to the finish line or not. But that wasn't the point. The point was that I was, I was bold enough to take the risk and to risk failing. And I knew that even if I did fail uh, of my you know, ultimate goal, that there would be something worthwhile and something that I would learn and something that I'd be able to teach my daughter about that. And so I've just now come to a place in life where whatever the, the perceived limitation may be, I'm not allowing that to create the ceiling, but I'm willing to listen to my dreams and my desires and to at least attempt them and to be proud at the attempt. Uh, and in times like these, like what I just experienced, where I'm able to really bust through those limitations and do more than I ever thought I was able to do, I rejoice in that. But there's going to come times where I'm going to be pressing those limits and I'm going to hit a, a true limitation where my body will fail me or something won't go right. The, the conditions won't be as favorable or what, whatever it may be. And um, even in that, I'm going to rejoice of, but I gave it my all. And, you know, I know a lot of people uh, talk about living that way and I've always wanted to live that way. I was just never pushed to a place where I had to truly adopt that. And now I'm there. Jay, once again, you're blowing me away with so much of this. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of these things. And if, if people are interested in learning more about you and what you're up to, um, can you plug some things that you're, that you're either um, people can find you or what you're up to? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I feel like I just completed a, a major chapter in life, but really I'm just getting started. So I'd love to have people follow along. Uh, they can find me on Instagram at jhewitt, J-A-Y-H-E-W-I-T-T, or at my website, jhewitt.org. And right now, there's actually being a, a documentary is being produced. Uh, there was a studio from London uh, who contacted me and wanted to make a documentary on this. And so they've been following me through my training and then through this Ironman attempt. And now uh, the director is back with his editors and crew um, back in London going into post-production on this. And so that film should be released in 2021. 
sometime. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of doors that are opening up. And so if somebody wants to follow me on Instagram, or you can go to my website, and you can uh, subscribe to my e newsletter, there's just a lot of cool stuff happening. I'd love to keep people uh, informed. And then there's different ways that people can get involved on different levels. And so they went to the website and uh, subscribe there for my e newsletter, they'd be they'd be in the know. This is great, Jay. Thank you again for doing this. And thanks even more so for everything that you're up to because it is so inspiring and the grace with which you do it is simply awesome. So again, thank you so much. And who knows? I'll just say it again because it worked out so well last time. Can't wait to have you back on the show after you do another amazing thing. I would love it, Matt. Thanks again for having me a second time. Jay, oh my goodness. Thank you so much for coming on the show. That was absolutely fantastic. Also, thank you so much for our sponsors, Prevenex, Inside Tracker, and Paper Trails Greeting Company. I love those guys so much. Make sure you go check them out today. Also, make sure you go check out the Rambling Runner Virtual Summit 2021 coming to you. Early bird registration, November 23rd to November 31st, $125 for lifetime access to some of the best people in the running community. I am so excited to bring this to you. Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.